You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Leading today's conversation is Sally Greenberg of the National Consumers League. This episode contains sensitive topics such as abortion and sexual violence that may be triggering for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Abortion laws have been at the forefront of the news lately, specifically the very restrictive Texas law that is now being reviewed by the Supreme Court. Many fear that Roe v. Wade, which made abortion legal in all states and was handed down by the Supreme Court in 1973, could well be overturned this term, and women's health care and access to abortion protections will shift dramatically. As listeners of our podcast know, the National Consumers League is a strong supporter of equal access to health care for all, and that includes a woman's right to choose. To learn more about this, we're going to be speaking to a longstanding champion for women's rights, Karen Mulhauser, who was also the first appointed director of the National Abortion Rights Action League in 1974, shortly after the Roe versus Wade case was decided. Karen Mulhauser is a friend of NCL. She's also president of Mulhauser and Associates and Consulting Women. Welcome to you, Karen. Karen, you have such an interesting and unusual background. I want to thank you for talking with the National Consumers League and being part of our podcast series. Before we get started, I just want to note how important these histories are coming from women like you, because you are a an icon for future generations. I think future generations are going to really appreciate what you've accomplished. And I think part of what we're doing here today is building their knowledge, their courage, their strategies, learning from you about getting things done, and their understanding that you have to struggle for many, many years to win some basic rights. And often there's two steps forward, one step back. And when I say basic rights, I'm talking about the right to count contraception, um, the right to uh, access to abortion, equal pay, freedom from sexual harassment. None of these, the, the right to vote, none of these are a given. Every single one of them has been fought for, hard won over many, many decades. So your story is so important to, to, to this history, and let's get started. I want to ask you first to tell us a bit about your personal history, Karen, if you would. Uh, well, I grew up on a farm in Massachusetts in a small town, and both of my parents were scientists. My my mother was a, a botanist, and so she had a PhD and was a professor in in the 1930s, which has got to be kind of unusual at that time. And she married one of her students. So my dad was 10 years younger than my mother, and they both were scientists. And 
at Antioch College, I was a biology major and had planned to do medical research. After a couple of years of graduate school, I, I dropped out thinking I was a total failure because what would I do? I, I know science. And so I called the school that I had gone to in high school and asked if they needed a biology teacher. And they said, well, no, but we need a chemistry and a physics teacher. So I taught high school and middle school sciences for a couple of years. And it was during that time that the rest of my life was charted out for me because the students were coming to me as this young 26-year-old woman with their questions about sexuality. The girls were wondering how they could keep from getting pregnant or where can I get an abortion? And even the boys were saying, how do I know she means no? And so I said, if she says no, she means no. In any case, so I, I realized there was a great need for information about sexuality. And after teaching, I, I worked at a pregnancy counseling service in Boston before abortion was legal, counseling 20 women and girls a day about what to do with unplanned pregnancies. Now, what year was this? This was uh, 69 and 70 that I was doing the, the problem pregnancy counseling. So it was still before Row. And if, if the women could afford it, we put them on chartered flights to London where abortion was legal. If they couldn't afford it, we referred them to a wonderful network called Clergy Counseling Service where they talked with a, a even priests or minister or rabbi about their options, and they would make illegal referrals. I never made an illegal referral. And they only made referrals to places that they had visited and knew that they were safe. When the New York law opened up, we put them on in carpools to go up to New York. So, how many people are we talking about here? How many uh, young women are we talking about? Well, and it was not all young women. It was some women who thought that they could no longer get pregnant. So it was women of all ages. And this counseling service would see 20, 30 women a day. And we would kind of grill them. We wanted to make sure they were comfortable with the decision they were making. And at the school that I was teaching at, I met my husband, and at the uh, very first faculty meeting, I, I checked his ring finger. <laughs> took him a little longer, but he got a job in Seattle and Washington State, and so we moved there, and I worked for Planned Parenthood there. They had a federal grant to train personnel in federally funded family planning programs, Planned Parenthoods, and so forth. A federal grant. Yes. Which probably would be not possible today. And Now, what year was this? So that was 72 that I was doing this training, 71 and 72. And it was a grant for Region 10 in the United States, which was Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. So I would get in these cute little planes and pop into towns like Walla Walla and <laughs> so forth and work with doctors and nurses and counselors to make sure they understood the law in their state. At that time, it was only legal in Washington state. States created laws on their own, just like they do today, to protect abortion. So let's back up a little bit because I want to talk about something probably many, many young people don't know, and that is that contraception was illegal in the United States, even among married couples until 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut. And so when I was doing counseling in Boston, even the unmarried women could not get contraception. Was that the pill, essentially? I mean, you could always buy condoms, I assume, to prevent sexually transmitted disease. So those were available, but on the theory that it wasn't a birth control issue. They could not get it unless they were married. But even Griswold versus Connecticut, wasn't that about a married couple? Yeah. So it was illegal until the Supreme Court 
said that was unconstitutional. Well, and I think those laws were state by state also. So it was illegal in Massachusetts, but maybe in Connecticut, it wasn't legal. So those are those are some states that where you would expect it to be legal. But let's fast forward now. So you're out west in Washington state and your access to abortion is made legal in that state. And so I was there in January 1973 when uh, the Supreme Court did rule on Roe v. Wade. And so we, we all celebrated and we realized that we had to change our speeches because the law had changed. And so our, our training programs became different. But it was in later 73 that my husband got a job in Washington, D.C. So I traveled across the country again with him. And I, when I was training doctors, I had the feeling that if they didn't know that I didn't have a, an MD degree, they could hear me. But if they knew that I only had a bachelor's degree, the first half hour I had to convince them that I knew more than they did about contraceptive technology and so that they could even hear me talk about anything else. And so, again, I, th- I thought I'd go to medical school. And so I started applying to medical schools as we were moving to D.C. And I was told that, well, at age 30, you're just too old. So I was invited to come to a board meeting of N-A-R-A-L by the woman who was on the board of, of NARAL at that time, and she was the one who trained me to do the counseling in Massachusetts, Pamela Lowry. What did N-A-R-A-L stand for originally? Well, originally it was the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws because abortion was illegal. And so at this board meeting in the fall of 73, among the things that they were going to do was change the name because they didn't want to repeal Roe v. Wade. So they spent two hours talking about what the name would be. And I thought there's 2,000 people who know what N-A-R-A-L and they could just start all over again, but they figured out how can they find words that would be N-A-R-A-L. So they agreed on the National Abortion Rights Action League. They also decided that they probably should have some a staff person in Washington, D.C. because the action was going to come to Congress instead of at the state levels. And so I applied for a part-time consulting job. Again, I had no idea what I was doing. We had just barely moved to D.C. and I knew where the the capital was, (laughs) but I had never done any lobbying. But nonetheless, they hired me to run the Washington office and the main office was in New York. But the next year, they realized that all of the action was in D.C. because Congress people were introducing constitutional amendments to undo Roe v. Wade and so forth or limit access. And so they needed to move the office to D.C. and they asked me to be the executive director. So that happened in 74. You saw the need in working with members of Congress for more of a grassroots effort across the country. On one hand, you have all these members of Congress trying to undo Roe versus Wade, which essentially said no state can uh, restrict access to abortion before 20 weeks. They did it in trimesters. And so if it's nine months is the usual pregnancy. So and there was some survival in the third trimester, and so they said it couldn't be legal then, but it could be legal up until then. And, and essentially, no state would be allowed to pass laws that restricted abortion until the third trimester. So that's that's what Roe gave us, and it was a case out of Texas. So very similar to what happened with the gay rights movement, what happened with my organization, where our founder, Florence Kelly who is not nearly as well known as she should be, got a maximum hours laws passed. And it was a, they were tested in the Supreme Court. 
And in 1908, because of the case of Mueller versus Oregon, the Supreme Court said, yes, it's legal for states to say, no, you can't force people to work more than, in this case, it was 60 hours a week. So it's a similar model for getting laws passed in one state and having them tested at the Supreme Court. And that's essentially what happened with Roe. But then when there started to be challenges to Roe in Congress, it became clear to me that we needed to have activists around the country because Congress people were not going to listen to me, a Washington lobbyist, no matter how well I dressed. (laughs) They were not going to listen to me, but they would listen to constituents, the people who would vote for them. And so I contracted with an amazing organizer, Heather Booth, to come and train. I was doing pretty well with fundraising. So I was able to not only pay her, but to bring in organizers from key states to learn how to build a chapter, to learn how to do organizing, to learn how to keep records. And I'm actually pretty proud of my time at NARAL those years. I I left in 81 because we were able to grow the organization 20-fold and build chapters in most states. And not only that, but eventually start a political action committee, which we were able to raise money and give money to to campaigns. And for the last couple of years I was at NARAL, we had a mantra and signs around the office that said, if it doesn't bring workers to campaigns and voters to the polls, just don't do it. Wow. So what did, what did Heather Booth teach you and how did you make this grassroots campaign work so effectively? She taught us how to how to do organizing. And, you know, this is this is in the 70s. We didn't have a word internet then. So this was all paper and telephones. And for a while, we had a campaign in an election year where we had printed out postcards that said, I'm pro-choice and I vote. And we had had our organizers put tables out in front of shopping malls and supermarkets and get the person to put his or her return an address on the postcard, make a contribution for the postage. We collected them. We created a, a mailing list out of those return addresses and built our chapters that way. I forget how many states, but almost all of the states had chapters or some kind of organized activity because clearly Congress people, they might listen to each other, but they're not going to listen to a paid lobbyist. They're going to listen to their constituents. Did you bring people in for Absolutely. conferences and for lobby days Absolutely. to meet with their, their members? Because we know that the opposition, those who uh, vociferously oppose abortion, because right. I worked in Congress yeah. in the 1970s, and we would be visited on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade every year by scores and scores of constituents. And my congressman would not be around. I had to respond to angry constituents saying he's Catholic. Why is he supporting abortion? Well, and the reason we moved to Washington, D.C. is that my husband had a job with a a House committee and working with John Bradamus, a congressman at the time. And the first time I ever got a dozen roses is when my husband brought them home on January 22nd. Because for some reason they 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 chose roses, and I did not let them make me hate the color red or to hate roses. But and they would have thousands sometimes of people come to Congress and marching, and that, that just reminds me one thing that that has always annoyed me is that they call themselves pro life. I am pro life. I and for. for people who don't know this, a lot of women died with self-induced or botched illegal abortions before Roe v. Wade. And so I've always been offended by them calling themselves pro-life because we're all pro-life. And botched 
and illegal abortions kill women in countries all over the world where abortion is not legal. So let's continue to talk about the movement and how it's organized today. Now, we've got a number of pro-choice groups. We've got Planned Parenthood. We've got NARAL. We've got a score of other organizations. And yet, you know, here we are some 50 years later, and we've got a Supreme Court that looks very likely to overturn the protections that were provided by Roe versus Wade. Even though most of America, 61% of Americans in the poll I just read, believe strongly that women should have the right to choose. How do we explain the effectiveness, I guess, of the the anti-choice movement? We won't call it a pro-life movement because I agree with you. Those who don't think that women should have control and choice over their reproductive futures. How do we explain their successes given that popular opinion is really not with them? They have become increasingly well-organized. Sally, you and I were at a demonstration in front of the Supreme Court in support of the right to have an abortion. And the anti-abortion people bust in Catholic children. The children were given the day off. And during the time that I was working at NARAL, it was the Catholic Church that was the most central organizing force for anti-abortion activities. In the latter 70s and 80s, the evangelical churches became even more engaged with this. And so if people are hearing a message from their religious leaders, it has a fairly strong impact. And when I was at NARAL, I I worked closely with a lot of the providers of abortion services, and every single one of them had a story, or more than one story, about a woman who had been picketing one week against abortion in front of their clinic. And then the next week came in and said, I sure hope you are keeping these things secret, but I need an abortion. And then the next week she'd go out and pick it again. So I, you know, they would never tell anyone else, even the person who got them pregnant, but they uh, had an abortion. I wanted to do a project, never did, because I couldn't get anyone to join me, to find women, wives, daughters, mistresses of Congress people who had had abortions who would try to help us make the case in Congress. I'm glad you raised that. Do you think it's important that there's been an effort to get women to come forward and say, I had an abortion, I had an illegal abortion, or I had a legal abortion? And why is that messaging so useful? I think it's useful especially if there are numbers of people who are doing it. And maybe, Sally, we can organize an effort through your organization to collect such stories. That There are groups that are collecting those stories. The first one that I was aware of is a group called Advocates for Youth, and they had a project called One in Three because one in three women have an abortion. And I, I gave my story. My story is one that when I was in college and got pregnant unintentionally, I self-induced. And for decades, I didn't talk about that. But It is part of what I think needs to happen is that people have to tell their stories. And I thought I was going to be just fine until I fainted in the bus terminal on my way back to college and woke up in the terminal office in a pool of blood, and they must have known what had happened. And they let me change clothes and leave, but they didn't help me. And did you go get medical care? Yeah. And I was, I was, I'm here. That's part of the reason that I do what I do is that I I know. And my parents had talked to me about, you know, you never have to get pregnant unless you want to. And so if well-informed me could do a stupid thing like that, it made me understand that the need is great. 
I also understood then, but more lately with the work that I was doing with NARO, that unless women are able to decide when or if they're going to have children, they really cannot avail themselves of all of the opportunities, economic and educational, that men have. And so even though I haven't always worked directly on abortion rights, that principle of equity, a thread of the fabric of my life, you know, all these years later. One thing I read that was very influential for me is the book, The Pill, because it talks about how women were desperate for birth control and they would continue to get pregnant and they were begging doctors and activists, Margaret Sanger and others, for help in preventing unwanted pregnancies. And and it's actually not good for women physically to continue to have child after child after child. It's not good for the kids to have, you know, a mother with 12 or 13. And, you know, she did a lot of her work, Margaret Sanger, in Puerto Rico. And same story. Women were saying, I can't control my my destiny. And so the pill was so revolutionary. But the other thing to note about the pill and birth control and contraception is it's the best defense against unwanted pregnancies. And yet, some of the same forces that oppose abortion also oppose contraception and free contraception. Would you speak to that issue? Well, it startles me. Um, And back in the 70s when I was at NARAL, several of us agreed to meet with anti-abortion leaders. And we had a conversation to see if we could find any common ground. And I kept thinking, surely we could find some common ground because we want to prevent abortions too. And the best way to do that is with contraception. But they couldn't they couldn't agree on on that. So it's it's. I don't understand that. Uh, I never have. No one has ever been able to explain to me why they're against contraception because that's the best way to prevent abortions. And I I know that they're not against sex. <laughs> they have sex, but they are um, and they're pro-sex within the context of marriage. Right. It is very curious that if you really want to prevent unwanted pregnancies, the ACA, the uh, Affordable Care Act, which made access to contraception free as a required condition of health insurance, the number of abortions went way down. So that should be where it seems to me that that is the common sense place for us us to be. And do we do a good enough job of challenging those who challenge contraception? I, I don't think we do. And that c- could be uh, an effort of all of the abortion rights groups is is to really take on contraception more seriously. And the, and the other now today, when we talk about the pill, it's the pill that could do an early abortion. So a lot of people are th- hoping that that is what will help in states that, that make abortion illegal. Because if you suspect you're pregnant early in a pregnancy, you can take this pill and it would cause a miscarriage. Well, that's um, that's probably our future. Were you ever afraid for your safety? Oh, yes. Tell us about that. I think you all were very brave. Well, my staff did not share all of the mail with me, I learned after I left NARAL, because there was a lot of hate mail. And in the early 80s, which is when I was still at NARAL, is when there started to be a lot of harassment and physical harm at abortion clinics. There were challenges against the narrow office. And my staff did not share with me the kind of communications that we were getting that says, I know where you live, which is good. I could probably sleep better at night. 
but I never had any any physical threats against me. But it is something, and it's certainly something that today is very real. When I worked at the Anti-Defamation League in the 1980s, we were getting threatening notes from a guy because of our abortion stance. And he said, I want to see your head on a bloody pike and things like that. By mistake, he left his return address on one of them, and we were able to figure out who it was. And we pressed charges against him for threats of assault and other issues, and he went to court, and and he, I think he was, he was sentenced. It was a fairly light sentence, but, you know, he said he was just under the influence of the church. It was fascinating to see who was the guy behind these nasty threats. And that's a precursor to all the trolling that we see today on the Internet. Well, your, your story reminds me of another story that is peripherally related. And that is that while I was still at NARAL in 1978, um, our seven-year-old son was sleeping in the basement of our townhouse on Capitol Hill. And my husband was out of town on business. And I was up late, as I often was, writing memos and so forth. And I looked up from my kitchen table, and there was a man standing there with a gun. He, it was August, and so I had left the door open for a breeze. We didn't have air conditioning. And I, I, I don't need to tell the whole story but there was another man in the garage. They made me go out into the garage and um, take all my clothes off. And they were in the house for two and a half hours, taking everything of value and putting it in our car. And they found the car keys. And I just kept, I, I wasn't thinking of who's going to run narrow if I die. Um, I just kept thinking of my son in the basement, I said, please don't make any noise. I didn't want him to have to come up and see what they were doing. Two and a half hours, they were taking turns raping me. And um, they they eventually drove away, and I uh, had a neighbor come over and help me call the police and go to a hospital and uh, for a rape kit. And I say all of that because for a long time, I was quiet about it. My my son was furious with me because they not only took my things, they took his piggy bank. <laughs> but I thought that I needed to talk about it. And I um I first talked with my husband and my son. Are you I asked my son, Does you do you know what the word rape means? And at age seven, you know, because he heard had heard people call me a baby killer, he he knew where babies came from. So all I said to him was, you know what mommy and daddy do if we really want to show how much we love each other. Oh, yeah, yeah, that old thing. You know, <laughs> I said, well, those men were doing it, and it wasn't about love. It was about power. And, and he said he didn't need to hear any more. But I asked it, him if it would be okay if I talked about it publicly. And so I then did talk about it. I, at that time, I was traveling around the country a lot. Uh, and I gave testimony in both the House and the Senate because at that time the Hyde Amendment was coming up again in terms of um, the federal government would not pay for abortions even if victims of rape or incest. And I gave compelling testimony about how I could afford to pay for an abortion, but for women who could not, it's just not right to make them have to continue that pregnancy if they want to end it. The police were not at all helpful for a while, but uh, eventually a, a detective came and asked me to look at some pictures in a lineup. 
I recognized the people that they had arrested the night before. This detective helped me prepare for a lot doing the lineup, and I, I identified them in a lineup. And this detective had identified 15 cases that had not been solved where they identified these two men. So they got long jail sentences, and um, then I started wow. talking about it because I felt safe again. I felt I could walk outside my house, <laughs> and I could organize. And, and then, and this is what reminded me was in your story, an anti-abortion person came into the police and asked if it had really happened, or is she just making up this story? An article was printed by quoting this man, saying, if you've ever seen Karen, you, you'll know she's not an attractive person. I think this was just wishful thinking. So I, this is part of the, I think women need to tell their stories. Clearly, if I had gotten pregnant, I was going to have an abortion. I was not going to be twice victimized and not know how to care for that child. So um, I do think people need to tell their stories. And and they need to tell them to Congress people. They need to tell them now to state legislators because a lot of the laws are going to be made at the at the state level if, if Congress makes it illegal and the Supreme Court makes it illegal. Well, it's a horrific story, and you're very brave to tell it. But I think it's so important that uh, those stories get out there. Yes, it, as a matter of fact, someone we work with, mother di grandmother died of an illegal abortion. Um, probably in the 1950s, 1960s, and she tells she tells this story a lot. She, lo she lost her grandmother. She never had the pleasure of having yeah. her grandmother's yeah. company because of that. But thanks for uh, sharing that story, and I think it's, you know, we may be looking at another situation if Roe is indeed reversed by the Supreme Court. What will happen? How does this play out? if we get a decision that backs the, it's the Mississippi law. Well, yeah, it's, it will be back to where I was in 1969. We'll be counseling people, sending them to London if they can afford to go there. And if it's early enough in the pregnancy, getting them the pill somehow. Plus, we need to be working at the state level because if Roe is reversed, then it's going to be back exactly where we were. When Roe was announced, there were only four states that had legal abortions. And so it will be left to, at the state level. So it's going to, it's going to be important. I mean, every, my main work these years is voter engagement. And, uh, in 2020, I, I started and coordinated an effort with two dozen organizations to get them to have their members and contacts registered in voting because we may make up our minds on a decision, but it's going to be Congress and the state legislatures that make the laws that allow us to carry out our decisions. How many states do you think will be passing Mississippi-style laws? And oh, many, many of them. Most of the the uh, political work that I've done, I, I ha I've had a consulting business since 1988, and most of what I do is political organizing. Um, has been at the at the congressional level, House and Senate races. But now I really think that we need to be identifying and supporting candidates up and down the ticket that are going to support the laws that allow women and families to, to have abortions and contraception. We also have a federal bill called the Women's Health Protection Action, and it 
would make the right to abortion protected by federal statute. What are its prospects? I mean, we're, you know, 50 years from Roe over the time. We probably had a Congress who might have passed it and a president who might have signed it. Are we too late to the to the gate on this? It's not going to happen with, with this Congress, with this Senate. It's something to, I hope, will get introduced every year. And it's one of those things that will be inspiration, I hope, for people who support contraceptive and abortion rights to get out and vote and have everyone they know register and vote for the candidates that support those issues. So, I mean, it's not going to happen soon, but it's, it's a good tool for educating as to why we need to get involved in elections. And do you think that what the Supreme Court does, and if it indeed reverses Roe, that that will be a catalyst to this generation of young activists, and I mean men and women, because I go to these marches, you go to these marches, and I'm so delighted to be able to march alongside 20-somethings with signs that say we won't go back, and very, a lot of humor in, in their signage. No, I, I hope so. Uh, just as when Biden won in 2020, it mobilized the Trump supporters to get active. I just hope that as something negative like uh, reversing Roe happens, that it inspires people who support abortion rights to become more active. And uh, you asked a question early on about why are the anti-abortion people more effective? And I really don't know because I think that the people who support abortion rights are just as determined, and I don't know why they don't believe my mantra of it doesn't bring workers to campaigns and voters to polls, just don't do it. (laughs) Now more than ever, we need to be mobilizing people of legal age to get out and vote. In the states, there are so many laws now that, that make it harder to vote that we need to be working on that, making it possible for people to vote. Let me shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about women in leadership. One of the things that you've written about is how you had no idea how to run an organization when you first came in. And you reached out to a group of women who ran organizations and said, you know, how did you learn how to be managers? What was your management course? Right. (laughs) That was back in in 73 when it looked like they were going to ask me to be the director. And I I wrote to some called, I mean, we didn't have internet, you know, uh, some people, who women my age who were running organizations. And at my age, women were not raised to think that they would be managers or leaders. And so those who were, were pretty strong and effective. And I didn't know what I was doing other than saying, sure, I'll be the executive director. (laughs) And so uh, when I spoke with each of them about, I've never had a management course, and can I come to you from time to time if I have questions? They all said, well, I've never had a management course either. And um, so I invited them to... uh, to get together, and we did on a monthly basis, and we went to each other's offices, and we would close the door, and everything we said inside that room was in strict confidence, and we we helped each other write personnel policies and bylaws, and somebody would say, I, I have a staff person who's doing everything she can to get my job and and we'd help her f- figure out how to fire that staff person <laughs> and board members, right? 
you know, how to, uh, you know, a board chair who's, who's difficult. And so we really helped each other and we did this for a, a couple of years and we are all better for it. And then years later, when I started my consulting business, after a couple of years of doing consulting, my friends would ask me, so when are you going to get a real job? And I said, well, consulting is a real job. And by the way, I'm making more money than I did running nonprofits. And I'm having more fun because I can work on more than one issue at a time. And so I made it sound so exciting. They said, well, how do you start a consulting business? And I said, well, I'm just kind of making it up as I go along, but we can make it up together. I now coordinate a community. I no longer call it a network, but a community of over a thousand DC area self-employed women. It's an incredibly supportive network. Somebody will post a, a need uh, saying, I, you know, my accountant has moved. Does anyone have a recommendation? And they'd, we'd help each other. And there are subgroups. So there's a subgroup of coaches and there's a subgroup that I lead of uh, women who work on international issues. And I, I think that, that these kinds of supportive networks help us all not only the the people who are asking for help but it helps those of us who are giving the help to uh, to, to be able to do that it may interest you to know that um, I'm part of a group called chicks in charge it's a much smaller network but we do help each other and yeah. we do find auditors and we go you know w- yeah. what 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 are you all doing for the Juneteenth holiday yeah. and how do we recognize that and promote people and get pay equity and we're all trying to do the right thing and you know it's it's not easy. It's it's not easy, and it's sometimes not even easy to go to your colleagues and and confess the kind of problems you're having. But it's 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 worth it once you do. And when I put the notice out in '88 that I was going to start a consulting business, one of my first calls was from the Dukakis campaign saying, "We've got a bunch of twenty somethings out here in Iowa, and we need some grown ups." And would I come? So, I mean, I didn't add grown-up to my resume, but I did go out to Iowa and met some just amazing, mostly young women, you know, right out of college. And when they moved to D.C., even though Dukakis didn't, they reached out to me after a few months and said, you know, we really expected that you second-wave women who were running organizations that we work in would be more helpful and reach down and help us climb the ladder uh, that you climbed. And and they're not they're just they're just up there being bossy and i said well that really doesn't sound like my friends you know second wave feminists and so i i had a dinner party with eight or nine of them and eight or nine of my friends and we stayed up all night if i'd had bagels they'd stay for breakfast i'm sure but we stayed up all night just talking about this dynamic and how could we change it. But that was back in 1989. We started an organization called Women's Information Network, which existed to create mentoring. So women who'd been experienced, they didn't call us old ladies, they called us women of achievement. And it doesn't really exist in the same way anymore, but it was a powerful network for mentoring and networking and helping young women. And I still spend about half of my time with people half my age or a third my age now. So I I really do believe that those of us who've had some experiences should share them with the next generation, make them better voters. Sure. And, you know, I hope I said this when we began, but I have found the stories of and the, the memoirs, the autobiographies, the biographies of the women who came to the National Consumers League 
starting with Florence Kelly in 1899 and Francis Perkins, who became FDR's Secretary of Labor. And they should be household names, but I'm always shocked at how few people actually know about them. Eleanor Roosevelt was a vice president of our organization, so I've read several of those. And Esther Peterson, who I know you knew Esther Peterson because she's she was a live wire and she was also a uh, very um, high up in the National Consumers League. She chaired our board and she was very active in both labor and consumer affairs. And her book is absolutely wonderful. It's very readable. It's actually it's a hard book to find. We can we can find a way to to get to get you a copy. But what they did and how they accomplished what they accomplished under circumstances where there was a lot of sexism and no expectations for women. And I wanted to mention that Florence Kelly, who was absolutely indefatigable and indomitable and really a towering intellect and got so much done. She was not allowed to be president of the National Consumers League. She had to be general secretary because women were not presidents. Yeah, general secretary. So that had some leadership component to it. But they went with it and they worked around those challenges and... One of the great things about Florence Kelly was she standing up for racial equality in the, you know, the the aughts of the 20th century. They were part of the progressive era. And I've learned a lot about that. I mean, she was in the forefront of anti-lynching legislation and she was attacked, viciously attacked by members of Congress as if there could be any way to be anything but anti-lynching. But their stories I find very empowering. And and I find your you, what you've written and your interviews very important. Let me talk to you about something you wrote, and that is that Republicans used to be strong supporters of reproductive rights, and those days are pretty much vanished. Yeah. Can you talk about that hard, sort of hard right turn of the party and how that happened? But first, tell us about how you worked with Republicans and Democrats. Well, back in the in the 70s, there was not the kind of partisan polarization that we're experiencing today. I did go around to all offices, Democrats and Republicans, uh, and I organized volunteers to go and bring messages as well. And if some bad legislation got through the House, we always knew that it would never get through the Senate because our strongest Senate supporters were Republicans. And I, I say that today, and even I find that hard to believe. But Senator Brooke, Javits, you know, uh, that they were solid abortion rights senators, and they would not let any anti-abortion legislation get through. And the the parties have totally changed <laughs> in the decades since then. But I, I think as individuals, just as I think some Republicans don't, support Trump as much as he'd like to think they do. I think that as individuals, a lot of the Republicans are in support of, and they know they can get contraception for their wives or mistresses, daughters. So I think that the, we are losing our democracy, and that's why I'm building a, a voter initiative for this. In my long years of life, this is the most important election of my life, and I want to do whatever I can to mobilize as many people as possible. 2022 or 2024? 2022, because 2022 is going to define what 2024 will be. So I'll be working on issues of uh, that, that I want to support and see in Congress. Do you think democracy is right. threatened? It is threatened. What I was experiencing in the 70s 
was democracy. What we're experiencing now is is not. So elections become more important every year, and not just at the national level, but at the state and local level as well. School boards, school boards that are saying you can't talk about there used to be racism in this country <laughs> or slavery. So much has changed. And I, I guess I, I know that the issues that I care about, whether it's saving the planet, which is the most important human rights issue, humans need a planet to live on, or abortion rights, or how to get rid of diseases like COVID, that I know I'm in the majority. But if we're not expressing ourselves as strongly as possible at the ballot box, we're going to continue losing. Let me shift briefly, but you and I have something very important in common, and that is that we both attended Antioch College, which was extremely formative, I know, for you. And you've been in leadership roles there back in the 1980s and more recently part of the board, the alumni board. It was a very important place for me as well uh, in the 70s. Can you talk about why Antioch was so important and, and you helped keep Antioch alive at a time when it, it was experiencing existential threats and extinction. Well, Antioch was incredibly important to me. It was a time when I was I was still probably the most shy person on campus. I was the shyest person in high school. But Antioch gave me some experiences that allowed me to think that I could do things. We should probably say it's in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which yes. is about 45 minutes from Dayton, Ohio. Yes. yes. And, and I have a friend who lives in Yellow Springs, Ohio, Jennifer Berman, who is an artist, and she made a t-shirt last year with a map of Ohio with a little blue dot, which is Yellow Springs, and the rest of the map is red. And it's a charming little town. So if you were ever in the neighborhood, go by and visit because it's really lovely. Antioch helped me figure out who I was. It also helped me learn how to take some risks. And so the big risk that I mentioned earlier about dropping out of graduate school when I didn't have a plan for what I would do next. Antioch sort of changing from classroom to experiential learning on a job and so forth helps a student understand who he or she is. And Antioch was very important. I kind of ignored Antioch for the first 20 years after graduation because life was complicated. I was having a child. I was having a marriage. I was doing other things. And about 20 years after I graduated, I, I went to a reunion, and I just was re-engaged <laughs> in a way that I have been ever since. I So in the 80s, I, I graduated in 65. In the 80s, I got on the alumni board. I became president of the Alumni Association and on the board of trustees. And when Antioch was being threatened for survival, I, I was a leader in trying to raise the money to buy it back, buy the property back. And and I just recently, last fall, stepped down. I was term limited from being the president of the Alumni Association again. My title now is immediate past president. And Antioch has either never left me or I've never left Antioch. And will it survive? I think so. I think so. We have a, we have a new president and I was on the search committee to find the new president. She's an amazing woman, Jane Fernandez. And she was born deaf. She's totally deaf, can't hear anything. So we also hired an interpreter, but she speaks perfect English. 
And I just, I don't understand how you can learn how to make sounds that you've never heard. But she's she's been a college president before, and she's honest at a level of integrity and candor with, with students and trustees and faculty that and alums that um, I have great confidence that will we'll do well. A lot of liberal arts colleges are suffering at this time, and many of them are, have closed, and I don't think we'll close. It's a special place. Well, thank you for spending so much time on keeping our alma mater going. Just in terms of the road forward and, you know, lessons for the younger generation, can you sum up a a couple of nuggets? Yeah. A few years ago, I was asked to speak at a self-care conference in New York, and it was a self-care conference of all young black women professionals. And my friend who founded the organization and who invited me, I asked her, why me? Why an old white lady who grew up on the farm before the internet? What would I have to say that would be relevant? And she said, well, you've been taking care of yourself. Just reflect on that. So still not knowing what to do, I eventually wrote a letter to my 15-year-old self that said things like, dear Karen, you're not always going to be so shy. You're going to have a wonderful life. And then I talk in that reflection about some of the things that I've done. And it's, I, I, I believe deeply, I, I think everyone my age or young, a little bit younger should try to do that. What would you have liked to know when you were a teenager about how your life was going to go? So I find that, that that letter is helpful for a lot of a lot of other people. And in the letter, I say, Karen, there are three important lessons that we're going to learn. And the first lesson is to know what we're passionate about, understand what is really important to us. And the other, the other second lesson is uh, to take risks. And so the dropping out of graduate school. And, and you have to take some risks. And I took some risks at NARAL that uh, I'm, I'm glad I took them. And then the third lesson that I tell young Karen uh, doesn't apply to everyone, but I said, Karen, you're going to find that you do your best work when you work with others, work in collaboration. And that's an important part of my life all these decades later is that I'm the one that starts the coalition for peace activists. I'm the one that brought together the abortion rights groups for coalition meetings and and the Consulting Women Network and so forth. Those are the three lessons that define me, is knowing what I'm passionate about, uh, taking risks, and working with others. And now, at this age of 79, I only do things that make me feel good. (laughs) So working on elections (laughs) makes me feel good. Talking with you, Sally, makes me feel good. Talking about Antioch makes me feel good. Well, Karen Melhauser, thank you so much for sharing your life experiences, for your many accomplishments, for helping to save Antioch College, and to preserve women's access to reproductive rights, including abortion. We've got work to do, but you know, without people like you, we would uh, we would be in much much worse shape than we are. So, thanks again, Karen. Thank you. We we look forward to working with you. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback. 
so give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org. That's N-C-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this. Thank <laughs> you.